Do you like the feeling of power you have as a newspaper proprietor of being able to sort of formulate policies for a large number of newspapers in every state of Australia? Well, there's only one honest answer to that, of course, and that's yes. Of course one enjoys the feeling of power. The newspaper can create great controversies, stir up uh, arguments within the community, discussion, it can throw light on injustices, just as it can do the opposite. It can hide things uh, and be a great power for evil. It's not a perfect system, obviously, but can you think of a better one? Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of Murdocracy, the podcast that keeps an eye on the news and influence of News Corp, the most influential media company in the Western world. Uh, I'm Cam Wilson. And I'm Sammy Shaw. Hey, Sammy, how are you? Good, good. I'm in, in Melbourne where the, um, where the COVID numbers are rising astronomically day by day and uh, we're watching Sydney open up again. So, you know, not at all, not at all um, jealous, bitter, resentful, holding a grudge or any of those things. Doing wonderfully, I can show <laughs> Sounds you. Sounds like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So happy for you guys. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy here in Sydney as well. I kind of tuned out of covid numbers i yeah. think when we hit four when we hit the four digits and i a new vaccination rates are going up and i personally have been double vaxxed i kind of just pieced out and i, I mean I, I saw that numbers had fallen but to some extent i was like oh like i don't know it is what it is yeah i've been look i've been like that as well especially you're right I, once i got the double vax thing done i've really stopped caring about the numbers and um but i only kind of tuned back in again when i realized sydney's reopening <laughs> and then i was like wait and we're like in the thousand plus now like oh this oh, is well not good. into it yeah i yeah, know it's crazy yeah. huh and sammy you haven't you haven't uh been subjected to any abuse from the coward's powers have you Oh, from the Coward's Palace. I mean, I, I'm constantly subjected to abuse on the Coward's Palace. Hell, some would argue I am an abuser on the Coward's Palace as well. So, uh, yeah. a, a prince of the, of the Coward's Palace. Look, it's not a bad title for Twitter. I, I got to give Scott Morrison that one. It is fairly clever. Yeah, it is. I look, I'm I'm an internet reporter, as you know, and um, it's actually quite often that Scott Morrison has a bit of a whack at social media. This week it was because it came off the back of Barnaby Joyce refuting uh, I think like online rumors and allegations that his daughter had been having an affair with John uh, with John Barilaro, and that's why John mm. Barilaro stepped down. I mean, obviously, like you know, people say anything online, and that can be pretty gross. It's such an interesting thing to me because there are so many things out there to really be like passionate and care about, particularly as a politician. You know, there's mm-hmm. climate change, uh, there's you know poverty. You know, with with the at the moment, there's no COVID supplement for people on on welfare. But the thing that seems to get politicians all the time upset is abuse on social media, and I think that's just because it actually affects them. Yeah, I think that that is largely a big part of it, and I think also it's the only reason why there's an overlap between politicians and um, you know. People with even a mildly public profile, like myself and yourself, even because, as you saw, Gavin Morris, the ABC News director, has resigned, and one of his outgoing statements was, "I don't see any reason why journalists should be on Twitter." Oh, man. And and this is something I ran up against in the ABC all the time. You know, managers and stuff would always say, "Why are you on Twitter?" And my argument would always be, "You have a full time job, and your face and your name isn't your your brand." Um, I don't have a full-time job, so I need to stay on Twitter to promote myself, sell tickets, etc. And the moment I step away from it, no one will know who I am, and and I won't get a full-time job with you guys. So, um, And I think politicians are in the same boat. You know, their, their social media presence does become a big part of their identity, their brand and everything. And so I think there's a bit of sympathy and overlap, but clearly, um, when it comes to priorities, they prioritize this way above everything else. Yeah, exactly. And if you do want to come into our little corner of the of the coward's palace, we, we have our own little court. Um, we are <laughs> Modocracy on Twitter. I think we are, we're Modocracy on Facebook. We have a Facebook group as well. Mm-hmm. And Sammy, you're at Sammy Shah on Twitter? Uh, I am indeed at Sammy Shah on Twitter. And I have a Facebook as well, which is Sammy Shah.fans. <laughs> you I, should, yeah, I, I couldn't get this, just this dot, uh, dot Sammy Shah or whatever Facebook fan page. It, so. it sounds like a link to your OnlyFans, which I'm very intrigued. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do show my butthole a lot, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but only to paying subscribers. Yes. Today, we're speaking to Janine Kalik, who is an uh, Australian journalist who has uh, worked in the industry for a bunch of years. And she's faced some pretty tough dealings as a result of her Palestinian heritage and 
her coverage of Israel-Palestine and just Palestine in itself, including at News Corp. Uh, and there's a pretty some pretty shocking stories that we want to share with you. But before we get onto that, it is time for News Corp News of the Week. Horrifying is what Tucker Carlson called the national COVID-19 response by Australia and not the US, a country that suffered more than 700 times the death toll of here. The Fox News primetime host who broadcasts to more than 3 million people every day made these comments during the book launch of Australian editor Sherry Markson's new book, What Really Happened in Wuhan. The Guardian's Amanda Mead reported Carlson made the comments regarding Australia's COVID-19 restrictions, which he says are just so destructive of basic civil liberties. Sammy, what did you think of Tucker Carlson parachuting in here and having an opinion on how Australia's been dealing with COVID? Uh, for me, it's astounding that Shai Moxon would have Tucker Carlson being the person who launches a book for her in the first place, given the fact that the most recent controversy about him is his advocacy for the great replacement theory, which is a theory that, um, you know, white people are being quote unquote bred out um, of Western countries that, you know, all the immigrants and stuff are coming here with this underlying plan of of breeding ourselves more so that there's less white people and then we can take over with the demographics. And he, you know, it's a, it's a white supremacist theory it goes back to eight, goes back ages, and Tucker Carlson has talked about it quite openly on air as something that he is fairly confident in believing Joe Biden is is advocating for as well, etc. So Sherry Markson talking to him was disappointing, even for someone who's perpetually disappointed with Sherry Markson's continued existence. The thing that I found interesting is how you know, the Roman Dean, Sherry Markson, all of them just agree so vehemently with this idea that Australia is this complete prison and we are we are living in a George Orwell level, just complete, you know, North Korean, you know, and giving up of our civil liberties and stuff. We're, and America has done it right. America, for some reason, is still the symbol of freedom and still the symbol of hope and still the symbol of individuality. Um, it's just this remarkable Joe Rogan comment section level bullshit. The reason that Shari wanted Tucker Carlson to launch this, despite you know the views that he has platformed on his show or even espoused himself like the Great Replacement Theory, is because he's actually one of the most popular media personalities in the world. Like three million people watch his show every night. He has had incredible influence over um, American and even international politics by the topics that he focused on. And in fact, like. He has, over the last couple of months, um, honed in on Australia on his show, picking these like, you know, very often like viral footage of interactions between, you know, anti-lockdown protesters and police and and that often end up in, you know, what can be actually quite horrible arrests and saying, you know, Australia has no civil liberties anymore. He's created this lens of Australia that is actually, you know, becoming very popular outside of Australia. And um, that's what we kind of saw this week where, I don't know if you saw this, Sammy, but there were people who were literally protesting outside the Australian Consulate General mm -hmm. in New York mm -hmm. with Australian flags saying, save Australia, because to them, Australia has become some like crazy police state, which is crazy to me because like, I, I, I know that this, you know, that we have, we have temporarily sacrificed some civil liberties for public health. And I do think that there is a, a really big discussion that needs to happen around how police are dealing with protesters and just generally, you know, mm -hmm. about police brutality. But Definitely. Australia is doing so much better than the US out of COVID. Like we have 700 times fewer deaths despite being what? I think like, you know, one sixteenth of the size. Like <laughs> we are doing heaps better. Tucker Carlson is saying, look at this dictatorship. Look at this awful state. Meanwhile, like in the country around him, you know, people are literally dying. The thing that you point out is the most pertinent here is how popular Tucker Carlson is. He's popular enough that Lachlan Murdoch, who's the chief executive of the Fox Corporation, he's actually backed Tucker Carlson in this and said, no, he's not, um, you know, it's, it's not, he's not saying a, a white replacement theory, this is about a voting rights question, things like that. Tucker Carlson's felt so empowered, he's even told the ADL, which is the Anti-Defamation League, the, one of the most prominent historic organizations in America. America that deals with anti-Semitism and he said fuck them 
quote, I'm literally quoting here. He told uh, Kelly, uh, Megan Kelly, quote unquote, fuck them. The ADL was a noble organization that had a very specific goal, which was to fight anti-Semitism. They were pretty successful over the years. Now it's operated by a guy who's just an apachic of the Democratic Party. And you see so much, which is, you know, this is another white supremacist talking point. So it's kind of remarkable to see some of this stuff happening. My favorite thing that he said in his discussion with um, Shari Markson is um, that he praised colonial Britain, which, quote, ruled the world because the Brightons were tough as hell, really tough and independent minded. That's why they dominated and they bequeathed to the world this remarkable culture and justice system and language. And they really improved the world way more than any other group ever, Um, which Mm. as a person from (laughs) from what was once India, I have a few complaints with that the whole point of view <laughs> about colonial Britain's greatness um, and, the, and the, the other thing is he goes I'm ashamed I cannot believe this is happening in my country where the fiercely independent Americans and, and stuff like that have been talking about you know watching uh, Australia in horror. Hey Sammy are you into NRL at all? Um, not even a little bit, no, <laughs> but, <me neither. laughs> but I did read the stories. I, I have a very love and hate relationship with, with sports overall in that I love to hate all sports. <laughs> I, uh, I'm not, I'm not as much of a hater. I'm, I'm big into NBA and AFL, but, uh, NRL never really has caught my fancy, but mm-hmm. there was two stories this week about the NRL involving News Corp that really took me by surprise. The first one was that News Corp is set to inject $75 million into the NRL, including, uh, according to nine papers, Michael Chamis. The deal will reduce the number of free-to-air games of News Corp-owned Brisbane Broncos by up to 25% and will include a proposal for another team, the Redcliffe Dolphins, great name, to join the league. Chamis writes... The Broncos have proven a ratings bonanza over the past decade, with News Corp now set to benefit from the popularities of the game's most powerful club with an influx of games on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, Sammy, did you know that News Corp, you know, this media company, this entertainment company, was actually such a big part of a sports league like this? I, I, look, I knew that, for example, News Corp and Nine Entertainment were, you know, managing some of the media stuff for NRL, but... I didn't realize that. I don't know. I, 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 this is all shocking to me that that they have such an influence into the point where they control certain teams, which new team comes in, and then also if you're a Broncos fan, does this mean that you know you've enjoyed them on free to air for so long? And now you're gonna have to start paying for subscriptions just to continue watching your favorite team. Why are you being punished for this? Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? I, I mean, this is getting into something that we've talked about that I find very interesting, which is where News Corp uh, is kind of pushing Foxtel. But the idea of can we get, you know, fewer things on on free-to-air and more onto our own service, which we're monetizing. And so this is what you're seeing, like, you know, it's it's kind of a bit of like almost self-dealing where you've got News Corp is paying the rights to to, um, show games, but it also... uh, it, it runs the Brisbane Broncos, and so it, and and it's it's kind of like pushing their games onto its onto its services where people can't see it unless they subscribe to something like Foxtel or Ko. And and I wonder, like you know, if it was me, if I was running a football club um, like this, I would be like, well, sure, I want all of my games on free to air, or I'd want as many as possible because you want to reach as many people as possible. But no, they're actually saying, well, we know they've got this membership, but rather than trying to meet, reach more people, we're going to try and shove them over onto Foxtel. And it shows that, like, how all of this, in a way, is kind of a strategy for them to just like you know take people from football fans into ultimately Foxtel subscribers. So, is it common knowledge? said the football teams or the NRL teams um, rather rugby rugby teams are basically large advertising services for KO <laughs> like that's uh, what it seems like right yeah yeah totally I- I'm not sure I mean I-, I have to say I haven't followed the NRL super closely and so that's why I'm interested in this and I, I don't know what the history and-, and maybe we should in the future do a bit of a, a-, a-, um, a deep dive into this because mm-hmm. I know that you know News Corp has a lot to do with betting um, and I- and obviously you know they have been major um, 
partners of sports leagues for a while. I, I wasn't aware that they kind of owned the team, but I, I do think that like, you know, increasingly it seems like every part of like, you know, media companies are expanding to be so much more than media, ultimately with the goal of trying to get people to, you know, pay for their media. And so that's why they're getting like, you know, they own things like, you know, the Broncos. But there was a second part in this that was also very interesting as well. Uh, Nine's Zoe Samius writes that the NRL itself has bowed to pressure from its media partners, including News Corp, and has decided to scale down its digital content arm in a move that's expected to result in 10 redundancies. They'll be sacked under a plan which will see the NRL stop making their own content and work more closely with Nine and Yes News Corp, their media partners. The NRL Digital Network was launched in 2018 and it saw clubs investing money in digital rather than outsourcing it to media partners, which meant that like nrl.com.au was Mm -hmm. producing its own journalism. So, you know, external to the fact that they were running the league, they're also reporting on things. They were saying, this thing is happening. Here's my kind of take on it. I've always been fascinated by sports leagues making their own content. Like AFL does it as well. Yeah. The NBA does it as well. Um, And it's very interesting because like it is kind of that conflict of interest where it allows the company to shape their own narratives. Like, I mean, you, you wouldn't see many other places where um where companies are, are like would have a media arm that's essentially reporting on itself. It seems like a you know, huge conflict of interest, but they have done some really interesting stuff. Them giving up this, them saying we're not going to do that now, seems like a, I mean, it is a capitulation to the networks to give them more control over the league, which in the long run, like, I don't know, it seems to me like a kind of short-sighted decision because, you know, if, if you're giving more and more power to how your league is, is portrayed by the companies who are paying you to to show their stuff, it means that you essentially have like less control over your fate. Well, the other thing that's interesting about this is the entire decision to fade out the uh, digital arm of the NRL came from Alexi Baker, uh, who is who's very recently appointed as the chief customer and digital officer of the NRL. And if you look at Alexi Baker's uh, LinkedIn, uh, her, her job just before this one was working for Channel 9. You know, for mm. nine years, she was the managing director of commercial for uh, Channel 9. She was director of strategy and corporate development. This is a strategy person who worked for Channel 9 and then she flew over to NRL. And then weirdly, the NRL folded up as a digital arm and handed it over to Channel 9 and Newscope. So um, I do think that that seems to have been something that clearly the um, Channel 9 Newscope had been pushing for a long while. As always, my heart goes out to the people in the NRL, those yeah. 10 people who are working in this digital yeah. team who are now going to be jobless. And they're not going to get hired by Newscope and and, and um, Channel 9. They're just going to end up working somewhere else because uh, they've lost their jobs. Yeah, it is sad. It is sad to see journalism jobs going anywhere. Finally, News Corp has bought a majority stake in the nation's largest full-service video production company, a company called Visual Domain. And that's according Mm. to the Australian's Sophie Ellsworth. Visual Domain does about 300 videos a week. And according to the press release, this purchase will bolster News Corp's video making abilities. Here's a quote from the Australasia executive, Michael Miller. This investment in Visual Domain with his... with its experienced in-house team and full-service offering from live stream events to high-end television commercials and social media provides News Corp Australia with immediate scale in video production to better serve our clients' business goals and the increased demand for these capabilities. I mean, this is all like, you know, kind of marketing mumbo-jumbo and industry news that I think most people would, would, would never even hear about. But to me, it's just another reminder that News Corp goes far beyond just being, you know, a, a, a company that does the papers and does, you know, broadcast stuff on Foxtel as well. It really um, shows about how so much of these companies now are trying to be full service to the advertisers. So they're saying, you know, not only do we like, you know, we do journalism, we 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 broadcast sport. We also know that the people who are going to watch those things, we're able to sell access in a way to them, to advertisers. Well, it's, it goes back to the thing that you talked about last week, if you remember, which was you said they're making a lot of money. News Corp is very profitable this year. Um, revenues have apparently been rising 4% and up 30% in the fourth quarter. And so the money's burning a hole in their pocket. So what do you do when you got lots of money? You buy yourself a, a nice little, you know, computer graphics, animation, um, video production company. And Visual Domain is huge. They're, like you said, that's a lot of um, videos they make in a week. And... Um, 
And this does provide them with the service, with Newscope, with the ability to be all in-house. I'm wondering if this will mean, um, you know, if news, well, Visual Domain leaving the market and then only focusing its content on Newscope, does that allow the space for other smaller production companies to come up? Like, how will how, what roll-on effect this will have on the industry? But yeah, meanwhile, it does seem like just Newscope kind of buying itself something blingy to feel nice about its performance. <laughs> yeah, toss it. Toss a couple of dollars and bring in a uh, a full service video company, the biggest one in Australia. I'd, yeah, yeah why not? <laughs> and there was one just a final like interesting tidbit in this article that I, I am keenly paying attention to. Mm. It mentioned that um, Nicholas Gray will take up a role at News Corp, moving from his role as managing director of the Australian, New South Wales, and Prestige titles to lead the development and management of relationship with tech companies i mean that's a pretty big big uh, move from you know these um pub- this company which has been so critical about big tech at the same time they want someone who is just in charge of those relationships because it is just so crucial to what they do well it's interesting i wonder whether how many other media organizations have someone in australia at least have someone whose dedicated job is to just wine and dine and schmooze with the media with tech companies that's a fairly powerful role to be given, but also weirdly, just um, it, it it could look it could either be a, a very powerful role in which you now influence the you know, relationship between Facebook and Newscope, or it it could very easily sound like the kind of role you give someone when you don't want to fire them, but you don't you do want them out of the way a little bit. So it could go either way. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I you know tend to think that I imagine that's a very important role for them. I mean, we saw when they got temporarily suspended from from YouTube, Sky News, that is. Uh, mm-hmm. How big that was from them. They they no doubt want to make sure they've got people on top of that to make sure that that hopefully doesn't happen again. So every week we look at. Um... Well, you know, in the interest of balance, we look at good news scope story and a bad news scope story. The idea being one where news scope, you know, uh, defies our expectations by doing something that we would requ- we would qualify as good, and another where news scope lives up to our expectations by doing exactly what we think it would do. Um, you want to go first with your bad news scope story? Yeah, we had a recommendation from our Facebook group, Murdocracy, on Facebook from Nicholas Party, who said he pointed to a editorial by the Oz. Uh, I think it was on Wednesday. So this is now, what, day four or five after Gladys Berejiklian resigned as a mm-hmm. result of the ICAC investigation. Uh, well, I mean, she res- resigned in response to it. Uh, and uh, as we covered last week, you know, there were some very, very, uh, you know, angry people about someone choosing to resign over, uh, you know, not wanting to have allegations of corruption hanging over them. Right. Uh, there's an editorial on Wednesday said that no entity should be above the law, including ICAC. And so in the editorial, they say, well, actually, ICAC has kind of gone too far. And it said the pledge by Amanda Stoker, the federal assistant minister to the Attorney General to stop a National Integrity Commission turning into a monster like New South Wales ICAC does not go far enough. I don't know. I, 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 the fact that they are now, you know, still writing about this five days afterwards about someone who, you know, may yet still be proven to being corrupt. We don't know. Mm-hmm. The investigation is still ongoing. Surely journalists should be on the side of ICAC, an institution that is investigating much like journalists do and trying to find corruption, That you know, a, a place that is actually trying to do something often with the reporting of journalists. I see what Nicholas is saying. I, I do think this was a bad example of News Corp this week. I, I'm always flabbergasted by how blatant the relationship in Australia is between journalists and the politicians that they report on. You know, from, um, you know, what's his name? Peter Van Olsen, Onselen, talking about how Christian Port is a friend and then that bringing into question then why have you been reporting on him in the first place? To what I've seen in the ABC offices myself, you know, while working there, how many journalists are very chummy, senior journalists are very chummy with senior politicians from all sides of the aisle. And this is definitely not a thing where it's like, oh, only Labour Party politicians. They are very friendly with Josh Frydenberg, with Tony Abbott, with all these people. And it's been quite remarkable. And then in the last few weeks to see just the the shock and 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 awe and and basic hand waving that's been going on in the, most media outlets over how ICAC has done Gladys wrong 
um I, I just, it blows my mind. Yeah, I agree. I'm with you, Nicholas. Bad take by the odds. Sammy, <laughs> you give us a, a uh, proof of what they're doing well. <laughs> okay, so this is, I don't even know if it's proof of what they're doing well. It's its something that, and I think you and I might disagree on how this went off, but <laughs> Sherry Markson, uh, at her, when talking about her new book, which is, you know, What They Did in Wuhan or something like that, the title is. Um, and she basically had an interview uh, with Ron Dean, where she was telling him about how she presented her book to US president, ex-president, uh, you know, still, you know, called president donald trump and um it was a it was a, a zoom interview or a skype interview or something but no one uses skype it's probably a zoom interview <laughs> and, um, and you know she held up a copy of her book on her end and then told the people in uh, his room to give him a copy of her book and you have never seen donald trump look more uncomfortable than when presented <laughs> with a copy of someone's book i would love for lynn to show you my book if that's okay the book that i've got coming out i'll show it to you She's, I think she's got a copy there. Sorry, it's just, oh. it's just the cover of it, sir. Oh, good. Yeah, uh, well, I can see. Oh, that's, oh, good. Yeah. I look forward yeah. to reading it. <laughs> thank you so much, I Mr. look forward. President. Thank really you very much. Enjoy your time. Enjoy your time. Thank you very much. Good job. Thank you very much, thank Mr. Very President. Much, thank you. Bye. Thank you. We have found that man's kryptonite. It was right <laughs> in front of us after all. It is the written word. It is astonishing. He looked like you handed him a rotten penis. Like he literally <laughs> was that disturbed by it. And then he looks at it first with disdain. Then he reg- registers that maybe I should be actually making more of an effort to seem interested in this. And he goes, I look forward to reading it. <laughs> yeah, the guy who's the last book he read was apparently Mein Kampf is <laughs> going to read <laughs> Well, that's uh, the I don't know about that. <laughs> that's the book that used to lie on his bedside table according to two biographers. Oh. And he always, always, always went on about how great the book is, how Adolf Hitler's, um, you know, was a great strategist and how we should all be reading Mein Kampf because of what it teaches us about history. Ooh. This is a thing he has repeatedly said. I'm not making this up just to call him a white supremacist. Um, I don't think Donald Trump's a white supremacist. I think Donald Trump is a Donald Trump supremacist. And then it just so happens that he happens to be white. But the the reaction that and Sherry Markson putting that clip on you know social media uh, a lot of people were, were asking I saw in the Guardian Amanda Mead said why would she show this <laughs> I think she showed it to prove that she has a sense of humor you know that that was an awkward interaction and most oh. people would edit it out and cut it out but in the, I will say as a person who's fairly critical of Sherry Markson's output most of the time this was evidence of Sherry Markson being self-deprecating I yeah, think maybe it's a sign of a sense of humor she did actually go afterwards to say um, in the, the interview because this was part of her book launch mm-hmm. she did say that maybe Donald Trump wouldn't actually be too keen on her book because she is critical about um about him so mm-hmm. yeah you know good on he'll her never, look, he'll never find out <laughs> let's yeah, be honest totally. and it, yeah. you know don't be afraid to show you know everything that happens warts and all that's true transparency <laughs> exactly it's the closest we've gotten to date Janine Kalik is a Palestinian Australian who's worked across the Australian journalism industry from public broadcaster to independent journalism to working at News Corp During her career, she's spoken about the opposition she's faced just for being Palestinian and writing about Palestine and Israel, some of which has been captured in the new book by veteran journalist John Lyons, Dateline Jerusalem, Journalism's Toughest Assignment. Hi, and welcome to Medocracy, Janine. Hi, thank you for having me. Good Good to have you here. Janine, why did you go into journalism in the first place? Uh, It's such a good question. I actually wanted to practice law and be a lawyer of some sort and I I got into law at uni and I mean the options that were available to me at UTS were to do a you know double degree so I thought journalism I just you know I thought there was there'd be a you know quite a nice parallel in the sense that I also saw it's um I guess the opportunity to to tell Mm -hmm. stories and and to write about things that you know that are important to a lot of people and don't necessarily get you know much coverage in our very sort of white homogenous media landscape 
What I find interesting is how many people I know who started off as lawyers and then became something else. Like lawyers who became comedians, lawyers who became writers, lawyers who became journalists. I'm surprised anyone ever, they are lawyers. I'm shocked at the fact that anyone ever finishes a law degree. So, you know, you're, you're not the first one to walk away from that industry. That makes me feel better. I, I honestly, I was just so burnt out. And I was, oh my God, law school was just so, just so many private school wankers. Like no offense to anyone here or beyond actually offense if you went to private school but <laughs> felt so out of place um but it was the same in journalism you worked at news corp for the early part of your career and and for like quite a few years was it five or six years in the end yeah yeah which publications did you work for so i started off at the local papers and the local papers here are predominantly owned by news corp so I was at the Parramatta Advertiser and the Fairfield Advance. Um, and I was at uni uh, helping out, just being a bit of a nerd. Um, there was a, a conference um, run by the Australian Centre of Independent Journalism when it existed. And so I was helping out doing social media for the conference. And one of the people on the panel um, it, it was Clive Matheson who was, you know, the editor at The Australian at the time. And he just seemed, I, I mean, I had some kind of idea that The Australian, you know, had um, a bad reputation, I suppose, um, on many sort of different issues. But for me, I, I mean, I look at Fairfax at the time and, I mean, it wasn't very inspiring either. I think I was just very cynical about a lot of the mainstream outlets. Um, and he just seemed like a really kind of normal, reasonable guy. And I went up to the panelists after just to to chat with them and, and sort of, you know, let them know that I was doing the, the social and if there was anything else, um, you know, they wanted to add. And I had a conversation with him and yeah, I mean, he gave me his card and he was like, you know, contact me, I'd like to, you know, you already work at um, our local local papers and it'd be great if you got in touch and we can see if there are, you know, any opportunities for you at The Australian. So I I didn't give him much thought and I, I didn't email him, I think, until perhaps a year later. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I was quite, I suppose, it was a mixture of being cynical and naive um I thought that I could go in to sort of any space and you know exact some kind of change you know not institutionally or anything but um be a voice of difference and you know diversify shit I suppose. You know, at what point while working for News Corp did you become aware of the fact that your Palestinian identity is something that is uh, a point of concern, a point of difference, a point of uh, noteworthiness in a positive or negative way for staff internally and, and people externally? So it was when I started at The Australian. It wasn't at the local papers because we were reporting you know, about cats stuck in trees and and that sort of thing. It was very, you know, it was very like local news stories. and The joys of local journalism. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of, you know, fluff and, you know, some council meetings, it, it, you know, it didn't obviously explore um, anything sort of on the national or international level. But at the Oz, I mean, I, I noticed it, it was in the first week one one particular journalist who had um introduced themselves to me and I, I won't go into detail that it was very sus and it was a very weird introduction um and they realized that I you know speak and read Arabic and so they wanted um help um with translating you know something that they're doing um, with a story and me being in my first week I mean I was just like okay um, don't really want to upset anyone so I translated a couple of quotes from from Arabic 
to English. And I didn't know the context of, of the story, but it was just about, um, you know, freedom of speech or something like that. Anyway, I found out later um, it was about Rafe Badzawi, um, who is has been imprisoned by Saudi Arabia um, mm. because of his his writings. He's you know being declared you know her- heretic and and um, yeah, and these were quotes from from his wife. And so you know it's a really sad sad story. But what I didn't know and um, until later was that it was a story given to this person by. Um, there's an organization called UN Watch and it's run by this guy who um, <laughs> watches the UN. But ultimately he thinks that the UN um, focuses a bit too much on the state of Israel and its crimes against humanity. And so, you know, tries to monitor, you know, other, you know, horrible states like Saudi Arabia so I mean it's not it's a very sort of disingenuous um, agenda it's not consistent whatsoever but so this person um, was sitting at their computer um, with the with their emails open and I had finished translating and I went over to their desk to let them know and I was just sort of like waiting um behind them um and I think I recall that they were on the phone but the email that they had in front of them they were in there was an email thread between them and um the email thread there there was my name they were talking about me um and yeah, I just kind of was like, what the fuck is going on? Like Vic Alhadef, um, who um, justified the, the massacring in Gaza in, in 2014. Um, Vic Alhadef, the, the same man, um, you know, when I was, I think it was a few years before that, um, turned around and, and called me a terrorist when I was sitting behind him at a Macquarie University panel. Um, it was, you know, a discussion on, on Palestine and he was there sitting in front of me recording. I had no idea who he was, but he had asked a really, like, really stupid question and me sitting behind him, I scoffed and he turned around. I was like, oh, terrorist. I, I guess that was my first brush with a bit of weirdness. And then, um, and then I, over the coming weeks, and months, um, I was called into meetings with the HR manager, um, with the editors, um, just telling me to stop tweeting. Um, so, I, I mean, around the time, I mean, there's always something happening in Palestine, but sort of retweeting and tweeting what was happening um, on the ground in Palestine. Um, or just the realities that Palestinian refugees like my family face. Um, and then I was called into another meeting with a HR manager who was just very blunt. Like I, I, they didn't give me a reason for it. They were just like, you need to, you know, um, not tweet any of these things. Meanwhile, another journalist, you know, at um, the paper, many others um, openly would talk about going to IDF fundraisers, like Zionist fundraisers. Um, some sort of like Friends of IDF event. Um, and almost in a way I felt, you know, next to me they talk about it as if to to almost um, provoke me or just create this really like really uncomfortable hostile environment. Um, but I just ignored it. Um, and I guess my, <laughs> my, my form of protest um, was changing the um, – my monitor's background to – um, I it was like some Palestinian artwork and then all these like white people who work there would walk past me like oh that's that's really pretty like what is that and I'd be like oh that's that's from Palestine that's Palestinian um, which would I think <laughs> um, really get under the skin of um, the same people who'd be talking about you know um, supporting the IDF and 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 that kind of thing 
So that was my like little tiny act of resistance. But other than that, I mean, I kept my head down and I didn't engage with it. But I was called into a meeting with the HR manager who just set it straight. And she was like, you need to stop, um, you know, the the pro-Israel lobbyists. Um, and she used the term, you know, Jewish lobbyists. Um, this was at the Oz. And that had actually come up you know, a few times as well, not just at the Oz, but, you know, at the ABC. And I was kind of like, you know, shaken up. And yeah, and then I was followed by two members of the Israeli Foreign Ministry. And at a barbecue with Clive Matheson, and this is in, in John's book, um, I mentioned it to him. And I was like, this is really weird. I you know, I was just followed by these two members of the Israeli foreign ministry. Um, by followed, do you mean on social media or they physically fo- followed? Oh, no, on social media. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and Clive said to me, and again, this is in the book, he was like, yeah, they were literally here um, not long ago and they had a meeting with us. Um, and I was like, what? <laughs> What's going on? And they had a meeting with Clive and the others about me. And I don't think I would have ever found this out if I didn't sort of bring it up, right? Like I I think he just didn't want me to worry. And he was like, yeah, I mean, they're just like really um, concerned that we've hired a Palestinian. Um, and, you know, they don't want you <laughs> to be working there. They're really concerned about you. And, you know, at this point, I mean, I'm a 21-year-old, um, you know, shit posting on the internet, um, just like trying to, to report and do stories and sort of make some career in journalism. But I was um, of concern to them. And so, yeah, over the, the following like two years, it was that constantly and it was emails it was phone calls it was being you know having a national chief of staff come up to me and being like we just got this phone call we just got this email you need to you know and and this would this was in reference to you know some of the stories that I did as well I mean I I pitched stories that um you know one story for example was about how the um some of the Zionist lobby groups were trying to uh, have a play written by a Palestinian playwright based in Melbourne. Her name is Samasa Bowie, removed from the education curriculum. So it was on the, the drama curriculum. And it's a love story set in Gaza. And they just went, you know, haywire and said it's anti-Semitic, um, you know, you can't have this, um, you know, being taught to students. Um, when it really, really, really was like Romeo and Juliet, but set in Gaza. Um, and so I did a story on that and, you know, I had spoken to some insiders at the, um, Department of Education in Victoria who confirmed to me, um, this is what was happening, the pressure that they were feeling. And so I had that story run and I mean like for all of the Australians faults I would say that when I pitched those stories um they would there would be some hesitancy but I also stood my ground I think you know journalists can't just take no for an answer (laughs) initially you need to make your case and say x y and z um and so they ran that story and once again as with many other stories I found myself um, the target of uh, these lobbyists who are just really pissed off that I was there firstly just existing as a Palestinian um, and not you know I, and I was completely unapologetic about it but also because I was um, writing these stories that reflected poorly on them. There was one particular story that I found hugely shocking in John's book about your interaction with a sub-editor. Can you share that? Yeah, so this was 
in March 2017. And so to placate the the lobbyists um, and because I had, you know, made, I had committed the awful crime of retweeting a few things about um, Palestine and Gaza, I was essentially shafted to the art section. So I was no longer sort of covering um, or allowed to cover broader news stories. So to them, you know, the art section is, you know, it's just like benign and I would sort of be hidden there. And the editor at the time of the art section actually um, forwarded me an email saying this could be a nice story. And it was the story about a a Palestinian refugee in, in Palestine. There are stateless Palestinians in, in Palestine as well um, who lived in a refugee camp. And he was a singer and he was actually going to be touring, you know, parts of Australia with um, a Sydney orchestra, something like that. Um and that was, you know, it was really kind of, it was a nice, nice story. And so it being, you know, the art section and the art section is also about spruiking, you know, events that are coming up and that sort of thing. This was, you know, happening in about a week or two. And so I, I spoke to the singer and I, you know, I interviewed him and, you know, I wrote the piece and I, you know, sent it off. To, to, to be, you know, to be sub-edited and then, and then printed. Um, and I was sitting at my desk when, you know, this was like in the afternoon when the sub-editor comes like storming over and he slams the copy of the story, um, like the paper copy, um, on the filing cabinet, like next to my desk, like just slams it really hard. And I was startled. And he just went on this massive, you know, diatribe. He started shouting, saying, like, Palestine does not exist. You know, you wrote Palestine um, in this story. Do I have to teach you how to be a fucking journalist? Um, you're not a journalist. I'm going to have to teach you um, and just went on and on. And he was just like red in the face. His eyes were just like popping out and it was freaking terrifying. And I was like in shock. Um, and I, I tried to, you know, calmly respond. And, you know, I was like, look, whether you agree with it or not, and I don't agree with it, um, you know, there is a quote unquote state of Palestine that is a non you know, a non-member of the UN in the same way that the Vatican is. I mean, personally, um, you know, I don't believe there should be like two states. I think there should be one state where all Palestinians um, and Israelis are, are equal from the river to the sea, um, you know, because we have the right to return, um, you know, and that's the case under, under international law. And so I was trying to explain it to him that, you know, even if you disagree with that, and I disagree with this politically, like I'm coming from a totally different way, mm. but we can say, like journalistically, we are able to say Palestine because we are referring to the quote-unquote state of Palestine. And he just, he wouldn't take it. He was like, this is nonsense. Um, just completely kind of ripped me apart. And no one said like anything, I think that's what sticks out to me as well. And that no one around who saw and heard him screaming and yelling at me um, and telling me that I was, you know, not a journalist, that I didn't know how to be a journalist. Um, like no one stood up for me or even checked up on me. Um, and then he took the the copy away and he, he stormed off. And I remember, you know, just like, I was in shock and I picked up my phone and I just went to the bathroom and like called my mom and I was in tears. I was like, I just, what the fuck just happened right now? Um, so yeah, it was, it was very humiliating, but also 
I guess very, um, in a way, unsurprising. I'm very telling of, you know, the sentiment that was that was held by a lot of people that work there. And, you know, I had found out that some of my colleagues also, you know, were talking about me um, and one of them was putting like a, a dossier together um, with anything that like I've, I've tweeted or said um, and had taken it to the editors at the time to try and get me fired. And, um, you know, the colleagues as well were saying like, I you know can't believe like she works here. She's just she's just a Palestinian activist. So before we kind of get into how much of this is also present in the wider news media, not just you know not just singling out News Corp or not just singling out the Australian, mm. for example, um, there is something that I wanted to well, I wonder about always, which is you know the central thesis, for example, of Dateline Jerusalem journalism stuff is assignment, which is John Lyons' book, as well as some you know the many of the stories that you and a few others um, have told. Um, is that Israel has an Israel has an undue level of influence on newsrooms in Australia, uh, and some have argued in newsrooms in many Western countries. Uh, at the same time, I'm very aware of that trope, that anti-Semitic, you know, anti-Jewish trope that goes back so long ago that Jews control the media, and it is a very damaging thing and it's a very dangerous uh, trope to kind of buy into. Um, how do you, you know, how do we balance those two? Um, those two possibilities that, you know, on one side, there's this, you know, white supremacist, anti-Semitic kind of trope about Jews controlling media. And the other is the claims and accusations and, you know, fairly detailed evidence provided stories in, in John Lyon's books about, um, you know, Israel having influence on media in Australia. Yeah, look, I, look, I think that's a really loaded question because there is sort of nothing to balance because, you know, this isn't, you know, it, it's not about, you know, this horrible, you know, anti-Semitic trope about Jews controlling the media. This is about um, people, whoever they might be, whatever their backgrounds are. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of these editors, you know, and people that work at um, media outlets aren't Jewish. Um, it's about them not wanting to, you know, upset some of these lobbyists. Like I, I, I you know, it's unfortunate. Um, and I think it's because a lot of, you know, Zionists and people who are pro-Israel um, have long conflated criticism of Israel um, with anti-Semitism when it's just simply not the case. And, you know, people don't want to be called anti-Semitic. You, know, you don't want to be called anti-Semitic. Um, and it's not even a question about, you know, being called such. It's that, you know, the practice of criti criticizing a state, criticizing any state, you know, is not, um, you know, it's not, you know, if I criticize Saudi Arabia, which I do often, it doesn't make me, you know, an Islamophobe. Um, mm. It doesn't make me a self-hating, you know, Muslim. Um, so, yeah, I just think it's a really dangerous conflation um, that's actually been pushed quite a lot by, you know, Zionists themselves. And, and they go after anti-Zionist Jews and they question their... Um, you know, their sort of loyalty to Jewish people. I mean, that in and of itself is is anti-Semitic. You know, to tell a to tell a Jewish person that um because they don't support the state of Israel and because they critique the state of Israel, that that must make them, you know, a self-hating hating um Jew. And mm -hmm. yeah, it's just this this crazy, crazy sort of um equivalence um between a state and like a faith slash you know ethnicity um so i mean of course those sorts of accusations are, are leveled these sorts of conflations and accusations um are used to um you know a, as a chill effect to to quieten to silence um palestinians and allies um and to to sort of yeah boost um the the narrative that the state of Israel is, you know, a beacon of democracy. Now, Janine, I want to ask as well, you know, we focus on News Corp here, but of course, like this is by no means unique to um, News Corp, having pressure from pro-Israel lobby. You've worked at the ABC, you've worked for Crikey. 
Um, have you seen similar things happen at different companies as well? Yeah, no, absolutely. This occurred at the ABC. Um, this isn't in the book, but the Israeli ambassador um, also went to um, Gavin Morris, um, who has now resigned, so maybe I can say this, um, uh, about me and my reporting on um, the young Palestinian woman who was um, brutally killed, Ayama Sadwi, um, in Melbourne. And so she's a Palestinian citizen of, of the state of Israel. Um, and they were just really uncomfortable with the fact that I called her a Palestinian citizen of Israel and not um, the official state of Israel's term, the Israeli Arabs, um, which is just extremely um, erasing. Um, so, you know, that was also kind of really scary. And, you know, soon after, I, I believe I was, you know, pretty much managed out of that job. Um, but yeah, I've pitched stories as well um, at the ABC. And I, you know, was told there was one incident where I had pitched a story um, and it was, you know, and I've mentioned this before, like it was newsworthy. Um, it was definitely, you know, timely and relevant, like locally as well. It wasn't, you know, just um, this is an international story um, that has nothing to do with, say, like the New South Wales newsroom. And the chief of staff at the time said to me, look, this is a story, but, you know, I just don't want to get into it, you know, and, and start something with the, with the Jewish lobby. And that's what she said. She said, you know, the Jewish lobby. Um, again, like I personally would say, you know, the Zionist, Zionist lobby or pro-Israel lobby groups. But there was this in, endemic fear of upsetting and sort of releasing the the wrath of of these these lobbyists who would you know send in a, a bloody ambassador to to go and and speak to you know editors and bosses um and you know i have i have friends and former colleagues at um the abc and sbs who have been targeted in in much the same way who aren't palestinian but you know if they're reporting um you know mentions you know occupation for whatever reason and it somehow made it through um you know there will be there'll be you know like heads chopped off really it's just it's such a it's such a hostile work environment and i recall um at the sydney morning herald um and a full investigation was launched into a crossword puzzle because one of the answers to the crossword puzzle was palestine and they lobbied so hard um, that there was an investigation into how this happened. And, and I'm pretty sure um, there was an apology as well. Janine, hearing about that is, I mean, it, it's just, it's, I, I'm kind of gobsmacked hearing about it and, and I'm, I'm sure we could keep talking about it forever. You've been in the industry now for 10 years. I know you're not currently working in it. Have you seen any shift happening is do you think that there is a chance that things will improve look i i really hope so i mean i'm generally cynical about these things but we have seen you know a shift and and not just in sort of the media landscape but i think in terms of um global and um sort of grassroots on the ground you know opinion from so many people but i mean earlier this year um me and a few others spearheaded um, an open letter to the media to do better on Palestine. And that got over 700, um, you know, signatures um, of, you know, many people who work in Australian newsrooms um, and some prominent journalists and, and writers signing it because they see, they see it for themselves. They see like by omission that there are, there are issues um, and that we need to be doing better on Palestine. Janine, if people want to follow your work, what's the best way? Um, well, I'm terminally online at Twitter. So they can follow me on Twitter at Janine AK. So J-E-N-N-I-N-E-A-K. Um, I guess that's 
where most of my, my stuff is at. I also do have a podcast. <laughs> I've only done two episodes in like a year and a half, so it's not going terribly well, but I'm, you know, giving it some life again, um, which is called Undivine Intervention. Um, but all of that stuff will be available um, on Twitter, which is where you can find me. Great name, Undivine Intervention. <laughs> uh, Janine, thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Cam. I really appreciate it. And thanks, Sammy. That was Janine Khalik, uh, a Palestinian-Australian who's worked across the Australian journalism industry from public broadcasters to independent journalism at News Corp. Thank you all for listening to episode five. Now, if you haven't already subscribed and you've somehow stumbled across this MP3 somewhere, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, just about anywhere. And as we plugged before, we do have a uh, podcast group on Facebook at Murdocracy. Thanks so much, Sammy. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me as always, Cam. And thanks as well to Kevin McLeod for the theme music, Ruby Innes for our artwork. We will catch you next week. Bye. Bye.